So many people never see themselves represented in the classroom. PhD programs offer little, if any, pedagogy training, let alone having to do with intersectionality or decoloniality. We live in a time where old classroom conventions and ways of thought are proving to be radically insufficient. New approaches are desperately needed. Hello, this is Justin. And this is Ashley. Welcome to Pedagogies for Peace, intersectional and decolonial teaching podcast. An audio series that foregrounds critical pedagogies with a focus on intersectionality and decoloniality. We come from varied backgrounds. From political science, feminist international relations, native studies, critical media studies, American studies, and ethnic studies. From philosophy, peace studies, gender studies, and political theory. To bring you insights from thought leaders and offer glimpses of what could be. From transformations inside the classroom to rethinking what is possible. Hello, everyone. Today, we are speaking to Dr. Tiffany Lothabo King, an associate professor of women's, gender, and sexuality studies, and with an affiliation with African American studies at Georgia State University. She is the author of the 2019 The Black Shoals Offshore Formations of Black and Native Studies, a book out of Duke University Press, and recently edited a volume entitled Otherwise Worlds. Against Settler Colonialism and Anti-Blackness, also from Duke University Press. Tiffany's work masterfully bridges Indigenous and Native Studies, Women's Studies, and African American Studies. We are so happy to have you here today, Tiffany. Please feel free to introduce yourself further if you'd like, but also, given the nature of these last few months, please check in with us and let us know how you've been doing yourself. No, thank you for that introduction. How am I doing? In a very fortunate way, I only know of folks who are associates and friends of friends who've been directly impacted by COVID in terms of health or having contracted COVID or passed away from COVID. Fortunately, no one in my immediate family has contracted COVID. No one in my friendship circle or colleagues that I know of have contracted COVID, but I'm sure they have people in their own families who have and who they're caring for or who have passed away. I do, I have heard of some professors and faculty members at GSU who have had spouses and family members pass away. And just processing the numbers is unreal for me. It's unreal. The staggering rate at which people are dying and also the ways at which people are ignoring it and disavowing the death. So to come to terms with that and live with that daily, is it's unsettling and disorienting. And then, as you all know, as academics, moving into a university space that continues to disregard willfully and craftily the fact that people will get sick and ultimately die if we open up universities, right? And go back to work. So yeah, I've been struggling with it at the university level, at the state level, in a state that was quick to open up um, with a governor that sued our mayor who tried to actually um, put in place a mandate for masks. So I mean, it's it's a struggle every day. It's, It's hostile territory moving around in spaces, particularly with aggressive forms of masculinity and and white men who won't wear masks. So 
people are struggling. So I do feel that a shared sense of terror, grief, frustration, which is something that definitely helped animate like this phase of the rebellion, both Black rebellion and Indigenous rebellion that we're in right now. So I am in a time and space where I feel connected to people who are in struggle, right? Yeah, thanks for that. You know, your comments about living through terror and grief, but also rebellion and struggle is something that I feel really intensely and that a lot of folks around us feel really intensely. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you're bringing that sense and that like collective understanding of the moment that we're living in, both beautiful because of the resistance and also terrifying and horrifying for all of the reasons that you name. Like, how are you bringing that into the classroom or how is it affecting the way that you're thinking about your fall semester classes? I think in probably the end of the spring semester in April, I, as a teacher, was really quite stunned at how unprepared I was to have people think about being in a state of sheltering in place, so being in quarantine or being locked in your home and dealing with a pandemic. I mean, I think we were all unprepared. Certainly the nation is unprepared. The world has been unprepared. But pedagogically, I really struggled with how to make that shift and reorganize the class so we either, not either, but we were able to incorporate content that was relevant. We were able to incorporate assignments that were relevant, even a way of connecting with one another once we were like quickly forced online. And I had a hard time figuring it out. I know that to some extent, I just threw up my hands and said, a lot of the material on our syllabus for, at the time, a gender and sexuality studies in the African diaspora class just wasn't really relevant. And I decided to chill and fall back and give my students less to do so that they could take care of themselves and their families. And then I decided that a final assignment option would be addressing four questions in a 500-word response. And one of the questions was, what have you learned about yourself? What have you learned about family members and friends? What have you been doing to take care of yourself? And then the final question was, what would you tell students, university students, 25 years from now? What advice would you have for them? And that became the primary assignment for like the last seven weeks, right? Just to have people complete that and share what they were experiencing and reflecting on and thinking. And then I decided for the fall, things were going to change for me. And so I had some time in May to rethink my approach to teaching. And so certainly this phase of the rebellion had already jumped off because of the murders of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and the conditions that people were enduring because of the pandemic. And I said, you know, I, I can't continue with business as usual in my classroom. So fortunately, I get to teach Black feminist thought every fall. And my class tends to reflect the population at GSU, which is 41% Black and then another 30% non-Black students of color. So our, our school is a minority-serving institution. And so most of the students that show up for Black feminist thought are Black 
students and students of color. And so I decided this semester I was going to devote the class just to Black feminist abolition. And that was going to be the theme of the course. And we were going to do skill building. So using some of the skill building practices that organizers have developed, particularly from abolitionist spaces and disability justice spaces like the work Mary, I think it's Mia Mingus is doing with the Bay Area Collective to do pod mapping, right? How are you building community? And then move into a discussion of care work and then restorative justice and then get deeper into some of the abolitionist politics and invite some speakers into the class now that you know, Zoom is all the rage, like it opens up the classroom space in a way that's really different than we've experienced, right? So to be outside of a brick and mortar model, I'm inviting in some speakers who are part of the Movement for Black Lives in Toronto and also a speaker from Trinidad and Tobago to talk about what abolition looks like in those spaces. Um, going back to Octavia Butler's parable of the sower, the first part that people are are returning to and using literally as a survival guide in this moment is something that we're going to be doing. But I want people to also come away with some practical skills. We're going to have Bill Spina, I think it's Yohan, come in and do a sort of justice workshop because people are desiring to know more about what what restorative justice is and how it is similar and different to transformative justice, how people can use these skills in their own lives. So it's going to be more practical and hands-on and really speak to what people are trying to live through, figure out, and survive. So that's been a shift that I have made pedagogically. And quite honestly, I'm excited about it. And I think it responds to some of the reflections that my students gave me in April that were, I really don't know that if I had known about this pandemic that I would have even gone to university. Like, I don't have skills to survive this, right? And I was just shocked. People are really reevaluating and reassessing their need for higher education. So I think the call is for us, particularly folks who are invested in decolonial intersectional, even abolitionist pedagogy to give people what they need, right? Certainly much to think about. You mentioned this notion of business as usual, and you've given some strategies and practical ways to survive. Could you give our listeners a little bit more words about what you mean when you say business as usual? And then maybe also talk about how your research and writing convictions animate your challenges to that? No, thank you for that, Justin. I mean, that's an important question. So I can kind of unpack what I mean myself and think about the conditions which we teach and think and write. And when I was thinking business as usual, I was thinking about the demands that I'm always trying to, I guess, meet and speak back to that the university imposes. So I know that our department, Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies, is perceived as adding value to the College of Arts and Humanities because we are able to produce students who are able to get into competitive graduate programs, right? We are, I guess, congratulated often because we're able to 
transform first generation and working class students of color into the kinds of scholars and citizens who are competitive or research one institutions who perhaps will go into the professoriate or perhaps take jobs with public health agencies, nonprofits, right? There is this kind of trajectory that the university has in mind around upward mobility for many of our students that we often acquiesce to because if, if we don't and if we don't acquiesce and comply, then we're denied resources or we're met with threats that we're going to be on the chopping block, right? And so since we're in a moment where people are predicting, well, not even predicting, but actually just saying what they see around them, the university is in a state of collapse. And actually we may not exist in the form that we currently do now or may not exist at all. I had to rethink, like, what kinds of skills do people need and what kinds of futures were people imagining possible for themselves? Like, a lot of people, even though we sell them this dream of going on to grad school or being the next kind of nonprofit leader, folks are saying those options might not be available. And I don't know that I value those skill sets. So one thing that I have been paying attention to is just one, the inundation of information that I've been able to get like via new media forms. So there's been like a proliferation of podcasts, uh, Zoom uh, casts, things on YouTube, which have actually been really necessary and important for getting out information, particularly about movement work, just surviving other sources that talk about COVID, right? And so one of the things that I know my students have craved and have always been excited about is the podcasting that we've done for the past two years. But I think that particular skill to be able to produce well-researched, informed, and timely kind of content in a digital form is a skill that is particularly useful right now. We're also always thinking about how to make our students marketable in the current economy. And so a lot of the content we've been consuming in my Black Feminist thought over the last few years has been Black feminist podcasts and, and the work and content of Black feminists who are cultural critics. And so to have particularly Black women, Black femmes and trans and non-gender performing people Produce this content is important right now because one, it's important for people's survival and for people to be able to connect with one another. But also, I think increasingly with schools, K through 12 schools being shut down, and I'm trying not to put this in a crass way, but I think people will be able to leverage that kind of skill set and make it available in this marketplace of parents who need some supplemental material for their kids, right? So I know that I had a friend who has three kids at home and she doesn't plan on sending them back to the Fulton County public school system and then reached out on a group text to many of us. Well, three of us who are professors on that a group of nine was like, could you help me think about curriculum? for my children, right? And so 
I have another colleague who is paying a high school student who's also not returning to the classroom to teach her six-year-old and literally said to the six-year-old, teach them anything that you think is relevant, right? So I also think that my students at the undergrad level and even MA level could work as people who fill that gap and get paid for it in this system of exchange, this capitalist system that we're certainly working to transform. But my students have a skill set that is really in demand right now, particularly from parents who need their students to receive a robust education or some minimal kind of material to get them through the day. So yeah, not business as usual. So a lot has changed in that respect. Yeah, that's great. I I love all of the things that you said about both skills, expanding skills for students in the classroom, and also the necessity of reimagining what skills are important, not just for the students that we're teaching, but also for us as scholars and teachers and practitioners. It certainly seems like this moment in all of its complexity has really demonstrated the necessity of rethinking what we're teaching, how we're teaching, and also what role scholars should be taking in in the world, far beyond the kind of normative expectations of the ivory tower. And I'm wondering if you could sort of expand on that and say a little more about how this reimagining of of yourself and for your students, how that's impacted your pedagogy and how much you're you're interested in thinking about or talking to your students about how your pedagogy has changed. If you're interested in talking to them about how you're doing things differently or, or why you're doing them in a certain way point in time and in this context, both the uprising and coronavirus and and also just the general patterns of colonization and racism and heteronormativity, et cetera, that we've been navigating and pushing against for hundreds of years. No, thank you for that question. I had thought up until probably this summer and more acutely, I'm I'm thinking of it more specifically and I'm being more deliberate to think about how I communicate to my students because of your question just in this moment. But I imagine that I was being transparent in my pedagogical style, right? And just what it would give people, the kind of skills that they would get at the end of it, why those skills would be valuable or have currency. And I think at this particular moment, I'm not so sure that I have the answers to why this particular work, and I'm thinking more specifically at the graduate level, why this particular approach is useful or helpful. Like, I'm really going to have to sit with that and think with that. And more importantly, I'm going to have to take direction from my students. So I'll use my grad students as an example. In the fall, I'll be teaching, like I usually do, a graduate-level feminist theories course. And one thing that I had ended up saying to students at the end of the semester last year was that I was afraid to teach Leah Lakshmi Papenza, Papenza, um, Samaracena's care work, 
first because I thought it was literally like up in my class. <laughs> like if I literally had to organize my classroom space and our space around people's needs, it just felt so unwieldy, right? Like I would lose control. And like I literally had to admit that this book was like a fundamental challenge to my classroom space and probably most classroom spaces and even movement work, right? The, the particular ways that disability justice folks help us reimagine what care looks like, if space is accessible, if we're in a right relationship with one another, will completely turn my classroom upside down. And I think that during this moment, I'm open to that. I'm really open to that. And I think that would be a critical text to actually start with so that people could bring their own needs into the classroom and meaningfully connect those needs, particularly what they needed to have our space be available and open to them. Those needs would be then mapped onto, well, how is it that colonization, conquest, settler colonialism, genocide, and anti-Black racism kind of make what you need impossible to access, right? And then how can we arrange this class and some of the readings that I had in mind or some of the readings that you want to spend time with, how can we address your individual needs and collective needs? And I also feel that given the crisis that we're facing as a community of academics and that we are watching budget shrink before our eyes, right? The loss of tuition dollars, a particular kind of intensification of precarity that's moving up the ranks, that's moving up the levels to not only our sessional and part-time instructors in jeopardy of losing their jobs, but also tenure-track faculty at the associate level and the full level might not have jobs in the next five years, right? Is there a way to invest our desires in a different kind of future and think about the university space as preparing us to leave the university. And I'm even thinking about assigning some of the newer kind of scholarship on abolishing the university, right? So I I have not read Stefano Harney and Fred Moten's newest piece where they're kind of reflecting in this time on what it means to think about abolishing the university. But I will read that with my students and create a new ground to think about what kind of knowledge production is important to us and necessary, right? So starting with what do we all need, right? And kind of taking an inventory and building the classroom there is what I have been challenged to do and something I've been really afraid to do due to my own fear of losing control, which is certainly in part created by the universities like rubrics of success, right? If it's too unwieldy, particularly at the graduate level, I might get bad evaluations, which will affect my tenure. But I just feel like we're profoundly in a different moment that people have to respond to. I mean, just on an ethical level, right? The thing that you desire, particularly if it's a future in the academy, might not be there for you. So let's cultivate some other desires and think about what other kinds of skills that we need. So I want to follow up on something that you just said, which is about 
the way that many of us who have intersectional, decolonial, indigenous, feminist critiques of the university can navigate or, or have to navigate holding those ideas with the obligations or responsibilities or metrics of success that are given by the university institutions, especially when there can be some very severe consequences for not conforming to those vis-a-vis tenure, promotion, reappointment, et cetera. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how either in your own personal life and career or just to give advice generally for those who are facing this complicated choice between instantiating radical pedagogy on the one hand and maybe protecting their livelihoods on the other, how you would advise others or, or how you've done that yourself? So we definitely all have to be really honest about where we're situated in the university because that's going to determine how much leeway we have with breaking some of those rules, right? And how much space we have to create our own mandate depends on where we are, specifically like what kind of departments we're in. So in peace studies, we might have that wiggle room. I know that in feminist studies, we tend to think about ourselves as rule breakers, but um, certainly other departments might look at us and be like, what you imagine is rule breaking is quite conservative and you're not as radical as you think. But I'm fortunate enough to on a very basic level, be in a department with people who profess a particular kind of feminism and also practice that when it comes to evaluating faculty and staff at the departmental level, right? So if we get experimental or, for instance, focus heavily on movements and activism in a way that other departments don't, like our chair knows how to write a narrative about how effective we've been in the classroom and defend us if anything comes up, right? So I've had that level of protection as a pre-tenured faculty member that not everyone necessarily has, depending on your department. So that's where I've had wiggle room. Given the pandemic and, and just my awareness of the acute, acute ways that almost everybody is touched by the reality of policing in a pandemic, like that is at the foremost of of most of my students' minds, I think I am compelled to push the boundaries of even what I thought was a progressive pedagogy now, right? And I feel like I will have support, not just from my department, but also an administration at the college level that is very self-conscious right now just about the fact that they are going to be accomplices to perhaps murder, right? Like there's a way that they're bending, and I didn't mean to laugh at that, but but there's a way that they continue to bend week to week to week with us when we put pressure on them. And so what this moment has allowed is an awareness that we actually have collective power as staff and students and faculty that we often didn't tap into when we thought we weren't in a crisis, right? We've always been in a crisis, but this pandemic and the rebellions has made us more aware of that. So we didn't have as many people who were members of United Campus Workers Local, right? So all of a sudden, we have all these people joining the union, right? And also, 
all this political education going on about the fact that, yeah, we are in a right-to-work state. So that means any kind of agreements that we make with the university don't necessarily have to be codified by the state legislature or the court. So they don't have to honor them, but we can push for better working conditions through people power, right? And so just because we were in a right-to-work state doesn't mean we shouldn't organize. So the number of people who have become members of United Campus Workers has increased by like 300%, right? The ways that people are pushing back against the administration have created moments where the administration is like, okay, we're going to make a concession. We're going to say that we're actually going to stop people's tenure clocks for people who are up for tenure and put the tenure clock on pause for two years, right? I recently talked to a colleague who is at Oregon, and they actually have made an arrangement that tenure clocks are going to be paused until there's a vaccine. So then I was able to bring that idea back to United Campus Workers, and that's something we're going to push for. So there is a certain kind of flexibility that our university administrators are displaying that perhaps other university administrators are displaying as well that I think should be exploited. And we should take advantage of that and push for as much as we need. So we could push for more practical pedagogies, pedagogies that speak to the current moment. I know that for the spring, when we had to rapidly transition to being online, there was a suspension of student evaluation. So we didn't do student evaluations because they knew that people were making an adjustment and it wasn't necessarily fair to assess them on a skill set that they didn't have or couldn't develop quickly. So collectively, I think faculty members might be asking that we have a different kind of student feedback process for evaluating classes or thinking about the quality of classes. So I think it's a moment where we can ask for a lot and be better kind of advocates for one another as faculty members advocating for folks who don't have tenure yet, for folks who are non-tenure track people, for staff, and even for students. So it's a moment to kind of recognize some of the power that we do have, right? Since we, since we suddenly have recognized that we're in a crisis and kind of animated to act a little bit differently. A lot to think about. Well, thank you, Dr. Tiffany Lothabo-King, for spending time with us today. We really appreciated all of your thoughts and intuitions. And just two things that I noticed that I just wanted to highlight was how revolutionary it can be just to listen to students, which is mind-blowing. And then also reframing our classroom spaces as a way to think about how are we equipping students to survive. Again, we're so thankful for your time. I know that we're going to continue this conversation between yourself, Ashley, and I. But again, thank you for your insight and wonderful speaking to you today. Well, thank you all for the invitation. I appreciate it. Excellent interview. What, do you, what are your intuitions, Ashley? What are your reflections? Well, I think one of the things that is really sitting with me from that interview is about how, how much we would really have to transform not just our classrooms, but also the whole world if our fundamental question was, what do you need? 
And to think about reimagining the world, the university, our individual classrooms, the entire project of education as something really grounded in both individual and collective need really strikes me as something that would need to radically transform how we were taught, but also how we're, how we're engaging as faculty people. And for myself, as someone who has a disability, that really struck an intense chord with me, knowing like my own history about relating to institutions that are often super not interested in accommodation or in thinking about need-centered institutions. Yeah, I loved it when she said, like right from the beginning, she was talking about listening to students, getting a sense of exactly what students were needing beyond and even recalculating what beyond looks like, I thought was really cool. And then I also loved when she said that uh, we have this moment where we can ask for a lot. But then when she said we can ask for a lot, it was actually, again, about need. It was about being better advocates for one another is what she mentioned. I really like that. Yeah, I think that often when we're thinking about the academy and thinking about ourselves as worker, worker faculty people in the academy, there's so much emphasis sometimes in the radical content of our research and sometimes even the radical content of our pedagogy. But I think something, the sort of third dimension that Tiffany was bringing up is like the ability and the necessity in this moment to say like, we need things too. And to sort of take that political content into the political work of being in community with each other as members of campus, but also as co-workers, and to fight for each other's needs in a moment of intense and special precarity, recognizing also this precarity has been increasing for decades and decades and decades. Mm -hmm, For sure. One of the reasons why I really wanted to talk to her is because She does work at the intersection of indigenous studies and decolonial studies, and she's in a women's studies department. There's not a lot of people doing very empirical or hands-on or in-depth intersectional work in that particular location. So I was really curious about how her research framework actually impacts her teaching. And I was going to ask that directly, but it came out right from her first response. I mean, think about some of the things that she mentioned in teaching. The things that I wrote down, she, she mentioned having her students create a curriculum for elementary schools or high school kids who are actually not going to class. She also mentioned abolition, actually getting people to talk about abolition and also talking about the abolishment of the university. She talked about disability. She was also talking about gender, indigeneity, decoloniality. So I wanted to initially ask her how intersectionality impacts her teaching, but it's so clear, right? It's so clear that every single thing that she does is all over, but she's connecting these sort of systems. I remember she said something to the effect that these systems prevent certain questions or ideas from even being thought of or being voiced. And I think a lot of those are intersecting in their nature. And so it makes sense that her teaching is completely, you would say, not all over the place, but you would say certainly intersectional and certainly drawing from many different disciplines. And I'd imagine that it'd be really engaging space for students. Yeah, I also really liked the way that she talked about imagining new skills that Mm. people need in this moment. And I think sometimes in the academy, we get really, really hung up on students learning content and like really getting all of the intricacies of every single passage or particular historical moment or or data set or whatever it is. But actually something that struck me as particularly 
helpful in thinking about radical pedagogy into the classroom was also thinking about how we need to be facilitating to teach students the skills that they need in order to bring a bring about a different kind of world. And so when she was talking about doing, for example, a, a restorative justice workshop with her mm-hmm. students so that they can practice that in their own lives and with each other, not just in the classroom, but sort of more broadly, that feels like a really, like when we're teaching content that transforms the world, we also need to be mindful of the skills that aren't always valued in the university, but that are central skills for organizing and changing all the messed up, you know, stuff that's happening in the world. Thank you for joining us. Pedagogies for Peace, Intersectional and Decolonial Teaching was made possible by the support of the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame. The music is by David Hazardous, and the podcast is produced and distributed by Hannah Heinzaker. You can find all the episodes of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.